Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a freer, more prosperous, and happier place. Now, by now, you've likely heard at least something about Libra, commonly and somewhat inaccurately called Facebook's cryptocurrency. But at this point, you may be a bit burned out on crypto hype especially after the glut of initial coin offerings in 2017 and the collapse of crypto prices and the popping of the speculation bubble in 2018. To figure out where Libra fits into all of this, I've invited Diego Zuluaga to join the show. Diego is a policy analyst at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, arguably the best dresser on our floor of the Cato building, and author of the recent article, Facebook's Libra is part of a welcome trend. Welcome to the show, Diego. Thank you, Paul. You were always so full of praise when I uh, joined the show. Clearly, you've forgotten about last time we uh, <laughs> recorded. That's right. Thank you. Uh, our listeners probably have as well. So, <laughs> Okay, so we have Facebook putting its imprimatur on the cryptocurrency world, which is a big deal simply because Facebook's a giant company, right? It's, a, it's got over a billion users, 2 billion two, users. 2.4 billion 2. users, 4 billion uh, users who are active. I forget exactly how activity is measured, but I would imagine these are people who are on the platform at least once a month, uh, 2.4 billion of those. So this is kind of a, um, uh, uh, it was best of times, worst of times scenario for I think crypto enthusiasts, because on the one hand, there's a certain degree of validation when a platform with 2.4 billion users says, cryptocurrency is a useful space that we're going to enter into and have some kind of role in. On the flip side, I think Facebook represents, uh, there's some of the early kind of crypto utopians, it represents everything that they were opposed to, the lack of transparency, the uh, concerns about um, your data just being widely available and, and perusable by companies, by the government, et cetera. So there's that, that kind of tension there, I, I imagine, in a lot of crypto users. So when you first heard about Libra, this, this announcement, what were your initial thoughts and how has that evolved over the last you know, week or so since the announcement? When news came out about Libra and Facebook's involvement with it in the form of uh, a separate organization called Calibra, which is going to be Facebook's financial services company, my first reaction was to think that this was a payments innovation uh, mainly. I read the white paper and uh, if you go beyond the Facebook brand name and the use of the term cryptocurrency, really what you find is that this is a somewhat decentralized new payments application that is intended to make it easier for people who don't have bank accounts to transfer funds both within their countries and around the world. To me, that is an extremely positive development because we don't realize it in the United States, but there are still more than one and a half billion people who don't have either a bank account or a mobile money account, a mobile money account being some sort of electronic wallet that you may have on your cell phone or your smartphone. Some African countries have used this to try and leapfrog over the uh, lack of bank accounts. But even uh, in a lot of emerging markets, you still have large segments of the population without even that kind of basic payments account. And because of the underlying user base of Facebook and its partners in the Libra Association, because there are some others who have also a large user base. Um, I was hopeful about the potential for the quick emergence of a large network of people who would uh, start transacting uh, in Libra. And in this way, you could bring people who have social media, have smartphones into the financial system in a relatively low transaction cost way. Now, the um, evolution of the discussion since Libra was first announced has revolved a lot uh, around or has focused mostly 
on whether it's a cryptocurrency and what the implications are for Facebook existing uh, technology platform to be integrated into its burgeoning or nascent financial services activities. And I think those discussions are valuable, but I think we have to keep in mind that they're highly speculative. You mentioned the interaction with cryptocurrency, and a lot of our listeners will probably have seen that there's been a cryptocurrency price rally in the last few days, particularly with Bitcoin. And some people are relating that to Libra's announcement and the fact that it will, quote unquote, mainstream, it's always uh, a bit uh, strange to use that as a verb, but will mainstream cryptocurrencies as a technology. But to me, it's a bit like saying that if a large car company launched a hybrid car, a car that used an internal combustion engine and an electric motor, that that uh, put it in the same uh, bucket as a purely electric uh, car manufacturer. Because Libra is a hybrid of a centrally managed uh, asset Mm -hmm. and a cryptocurrency as commonly understood. Why? Because The Libra Association, which is going to be the organization managing the governance of the Libra network. And that's like uh, Facebook, PayPal. It's 28 members so far. Facebook, PayPal are among them. So is MasterCard and Visa, Booking.com. A lot of the payment platforms that we and payment and booking platforms that we're familiar with. Uber is part of it as well. Uh, They want to expand it to 100 members by the launch of Libra, which uh, right now is planned for the first half of 2020. Uh, But those are the only people who will have a say in governance, whereas most cryptocurrencies have kind of an open access kind of governance. If you're a participant user, you will be able to make decisions uh, commensurate with how much cryptocurrency you hold, how much computing power you expend, or some other mechanism. In this case, Facebook and its partner organizations will be the validators on the network, which means that decision-making is not fully decentralized, which is why I say that Libra is a hybrid. It's kind of in between is, is, is my sense where, so it's not fully permissionless, it's not fully distributed, um, but it's not like a, 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 you know, a government-controlled fiat currency where there is you know, a single deciding board or or federal reserve or whatever it may be that makes those decisions it's distributed among well potentially a hundred validators rather than one but also rather than the totality of all its users that's right i think there are two features that that need to be highlighted the first one as you rightly say is the relative distribution of control among the member organizations and the second one is the constitutional uh, foundational principles if you will of libra because Unlike central banks, which have a great deal of discretion, they could commit today to a particular rule of behavior, but nothing binds them to that rule. Typically, there are no constitutionally binding rules. I mean, a lot of banks have, a lot of central banks rather, have an inflation target. Sometimes that's mandated by the legislature. Other times they've decided to do it on their own. But those could be changed without prior notice. In the case of Libra, they're committing to picking a basket of relatively stable fiat currencies from around the world and to purchase uh, securities such as government bonds denominated in those uh, currencies to back every unit of Libra that is issued. 
And they're also saying that any changes to that structure of governance will have to carry a two-thirds majority in order to happen. What that does, quite regardless of the distribution of control on the network, is reassure the user that the policy won't change and therefore that the value generation or the value proposition of Libra won't be affected by arbitrary decision-making from the manager. So this, in a sense, this basket of like uh, uh, you know bonds and, and other kind of relatively stable investments that they're going to put... Uh, their reserve in. Um, it's interesting to me because it, again, it's this kind of middling thing. It's not so unlike a fiat currency, which is backed by the full faith and credit of a of a government. They just say, "Trust us, we're good for it." But it's not backed by uh, bullion like it used to be, or, or kind of was. That, that's a, I don't get into that complicated discussion. Yeah. But it's also so it's not fully detached from some kind of uh, a store of value behind it, it's not the same as it's not in gold or, or the like. I mean, it's not linked to a, it's a metallic standard or, or anything. But it does seem to have some sort of like, I, I suppose this is a mechanism for reassuring users. I mean, th- the Libra Association is new. They can't just say, we're the United States government, trust us, this money's fine and stable and we're going to manage it well because we're the government of a large, powerful country. It can't do that. So it's it's interesting. So how do you see that that reserve, that basket of bonds and stable investments? Does that make it kind of like a, um, a central bank hold a reserve currency? What's going on there? Explain that for. So there are several aspects to this. And of course, it gets a little bit philosophical when you start talking about value, mm-hmm. because we say, well, it's not backed by gold, which obviously is valuable. It's like, well, you know, but value comes for values in the eye of the beholder, of course. And there is trust in, in a lot of the international reserve fiat currencies. We're thinking here about the, the pound sterling as well as the US dollar and the euro and the Japanese yen. There's a certain confidence that from today to tomorrow, there won't be significant depreciation in what in the purchasing power of a unit of that currency. Because they have a track record. They've been around for... They've yeah. been around. They uh, have a record of uh, reasonable, although of course, you know, there are uh, long-term purchasing power uh, dynamics here, which sometimes are not very flattering. But in the short term, they have a record of relatively good value preservation. And you can use them to pay taxes. So at least you can always be sure that uh, one of your uh, most certain obligations is payable in the fiat currency issued by the jurisdiction where you reside. So there are some elements that um, facilitate adoption of those. In the case of Libra, it operates a bit like um, Hong Kong's monetary system does. Hong Kong has what's called a currency board, which means that um, an entity set up by the Hong Kong government uh, issues domestic currency um, on a on a proportionate basis to the number of uh, US dollars that the uh, board holds. And that is supposed to uh, increase confidence in the system by giving everyone the possibility to redeem that unit that's been issued for uh, a US dollar. It isn't clear in the case of the Libra Association what redemption looks like, whether there is a promise to redeem one unit of Libra for uh, a basket of said units of the currencies backing it, or whether it's more like a mutual fund where there are shares that compose it and the shares may fluctuate in value, but because the assets that compose the basket are relatively stable, you are not particularly fearful of momentary volatility. But no one is promising you a fixed unit for your unit of Libra. 
However, as you say, all of those things are intended to increase trust. Uh, they're intended to lower transaction costs and the, the way in which you might switch between US dollars and your Libra account. Uh, because I don't think the expectation by any member of the Libra Association is that adoption will be uh, 100%. It's not like people will you know, instantaneously uh, shift their cash balances onto Libra. But we can probably envisage a situation in which a lot of people who regularly use PayPal, regularly purchase things online, um, travel once or twice a year uh, abroad and maybe send money to friends and family who are abroad, why they would have an incentive to carry some balance in Libra over time in the same way that because I know that I will be spending um, some amount of money at one of the large coffee chains every year, I don't really mind carrying a $50 uh, gift card for that chain in my wallet. I don't go out instantly and want to exchange it for US dollars. Uh, I think the, the, uh, the expectation is similar in this case. How about to, to contextualize this for our listeners, let's walk through the chain of events when you purchase something right now uh, online using, I don't know, say a Visa card or something, what that looks like, what the downsides are for that versus the promise of something like Libra, um, how that reduces friction transaction costs and the like. So I've identified I really want uh, a carpet. I've seen the carpet on Amazon. I want to buy it. What does that process look like now? Where are the expenses and frictions, some of which are hidden um, currently to the consumer but are real on the back end? And then how does that change in a, in a potential Libra-based world? Payment cards have been a tremendous financial innovation. It's, it's amazing to think that uh, as recently as 30 or 40 years ago, a very small minority of people actually used cards rich people. To, pay, yeah, yeah. to pay for things exactly. And, uh, you know, they, they enable a relatively low transaction cost way, high security way uh, to pay for expenses. You defer payment in some cases, whether it's a charge card or a credit card that you're using. But typically, you have to have a bank account that's linked to that card. You could purchase a prepaid card, but that's um, that has its own requirements. It's expensive to issue, and uh, you may not be able to use it in as wide a selection of merchants as you can use a regular payment card. In addition to that, there are fees, as you say, involved in paying with uh, a payment card. And those are somewhat invisible to the user because they're not explicitly charged. But because the market is quite competitive, the user is the one that pays those fees. The merchant typically passes on uh, what's called the interchange fee on a transaction to the consumer. And how much are we talking about? In, with Three, 400 basis points, so 3 4% of the transaction uh, typically. I stand to be corrected. Um, maybe someone from MasterCard or Visa would uh, you know, argue with me and say sometimes it's 2.5%. Yeah. But it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. in, that, in that region. Um, of course... Keep in mind that this involves a terminal that you can pay with, the guarantee that the entity issuing the card, or rather, the not, not the entity issuing the card because that's a bank typically, but the entity uh, behind the network, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, is guaranteeing the transaction mm -hmm. uh, so that if I as a consumer fail to have the ready funds for it, the merchant is not left out to dry. Yeah. And, uh, and likewise, if someone engaged in a fraudulent transaction on my behalf, I can call up 
Visa, Mastercard, or Amex and tell them, please reverse this transaction, compensate me. Uh, it's it wasn't my fault, or I made a mistake, or whatever. Yeah. The, the, those are all the various uh, costs that uh, this this system pays for. So you're getting real value for that three to four percent. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Now, where I see Libra and the financial applications that it will hopefully give birth to, uh, bringing new benefits to the system is first of all in enabling people to access the same benefits that cardholders have today without having to own a bank account because you would uh, link your payments directly to your social media account or Calibra where your identity is linked to your social media account and they're you know, Facebook has promised a separation between social media and its financial services provision, but I think that's separate. In terms of ID verification, it's useful for your information to be already contained online and uh, and for you to be able to load cash, say, into your Libra account. So that's the one benefit. And then the second one is uh, more competition. I mentioned that Visa and MasterCard are involved in this. And I think the reason they are is that, first of all, they are very expert in the market. They have contracts with a lot of merchants, large and small, around the world. They know a lot about payment security. They've been doing this for a long time. But I think they're also interested in finding out what comes out of this and increasing their user base, and particularly in incentivizing merchants to accept Libra payments eventually, where they're using the card terminal that you use typically now when you go to pay at a store or in some other uh, capacity. And, uh, and and I think that holds a lot of promise in terms of um, increasing both competition within the Libra mm-hmm. ecosystem, which we find with platforms a lot, and maybe we can discuss that in a moment, but also outside of it in that MasterCard and Visa and other networks will continue to enable transactions in domestic fiat currencies, but they will also have specific operations for Libra. So the you, you see the prime benefit is people who currently the one point – however many billion, five billion? 1.7 billion. 1.7 billion. Who... It's a rapidly decreasing number, by the way. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, we, we, it, the, 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 the more we reduce the number, the more difficult it becomes to scrape the barrel, you know, the, the people yeah. at the bottom. Uh, but in the U.S., we still have about 8 million households who have no basic bank account. And in addition to that, another 20 million who have a basic bank account but don't have access to cheap payments and credit. I think a lot of the time we focus so much on price that we don't realize how much we value instant settlement, the ability for I as a merchant to know that regardless of what happens and I don't need to know your name or have served you before, I know that I'm going to get my money and I know that I'm going to get it now and there's a receipt and I can give you the receipt and you sign it or you type in your PIN code or whatever it is uh, and, and the same with this that there will be someone standing behind the transaction. And I, as a customer, just value the fact that I know wherever I walk into, there's a pretty decent chance, almost overwhelming chance, that one of my payment cards is accepted at that venue. So That's you, very convenient in terms of, as you say, not having to walk around with yeah. a lot of cash everywhere. So if you're PayPal or MasterCard or Visa, all of whom are already on the Libra Association, um, uh, why would they if, if this is to, if we're talking about competition is this their competition who is this competition for why would they be encouraging and promoting something that promises to compete with them so if you're paypal why do you want a paypal like cryptocurrency competing for payments processing it's a good question and 
It's one that I think is quite speculative because I don't even think the businesses realize the full implications of this mm. technology. It could be that it uh, flounders, that it that it doesn't really take off, or it could be that it takes off and takes over uh, a lot of the payments uh, market in a relatively short span of time. And I'm not voicing an opinion on that, and I don't think we should be in the prediction business. Yeah, yeah, we, don't. we should be in the uh, allowing uh, a thousand flowers to bloom business. Mm-hmm. But I think from the perspective of, of these networks, they say... We are involved in this. There's there's a latent market that we're not covering right now, and we have expertise sufficient to uh, be competitive, even when the technology is not the one that we're currently using. It's a little bit like if 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 a large car manufacturer came up with a way to build highways more cheaply. Uh, and that get people faster to their destinations, and you can reach more distant and remote locations than the way we currently do things. Would it be in the interest of other car companies to join that effort Mm. or to block it? Again, it's not obvious. Some car companies might choose one path. Others might choose the latter. But the idea is that this is so attractive uh, as a complement to what already exists that uh, perhaps it's uh, a mistake to let it pass, or at least not to be informed about what's going on. Well, the other things you mentioned was the benefits to um, speeding international payments. So we've been talking about you know paying for things online, but I've heard you, actually in your previous episode you recorded with us, you talked about folks who send remittances overseas. And like, so if right now baked into our payment process in the developed world is, you know, it's a three or 4% uh, price that we pay for all these, these upsides, this convenience and whatnot, that the remittances market, the international money transfers, it is much, there's a great deal more friction and cost. Um, and that Libra promises to make that, to streamline that. I mean, the benefits there would be even greater uh, potentially. Can, can you unpack that for us? It increases the transaction costs of uh, make, making payments internationally, that these happen relatively infrequently and less is known about the counterparty's interaction. So the fee can run anywhere between 7 and 10% of the value of the money transferred, which is expensive on any amount, but particularly when you are someone not making very much but sending a lot of your paycheck to relatives abroad on a frequent basis can really add up. Yeah, And the promise of Libra is to reduce the number of hoops that you have to jump through, increase the speed, but also lower the cost uh, of the transaction. So the promise of Libra is to reduce the cost of sending uh, funds abroad, reduce the time that it takes. And because every, not everybody, but because a large share of the people uh, who engage in these activities also have an account with one of the members of the Libra Association, bringing them in uh, might not be as difficult as it is in other areas. I mean, so to to put this on the ground, you let's say you are a uh, I don't know you're a, a day laborer who immigrated from El Salvador. You're working in the U.S. Right now, you have to go to the money transfer desk at Walmart and pay a very large fee, uh, up to ten percent of the amount, to send money from your weekly paycheck back home to your family uh, that you know you're waiting to bring with you or whatever you're trying to support your family back home. Um, well, this makes that, but folks in El Salvador, they might have Facebook. They might, they might not even have Facebook. They might be on PayPal. They might, any of these association members using 
uh, Libra, they could make that transfer m much more quickly. It would arrive almost instantaneously compared to the current process and at a, a fraction of the cost potentially. So real benefits for uh, ordinary working folks. Absolutely. And you would you would have more certainty. You receive a notification when you get your yeah. funds. Uh, you would have it on your phone rather than have to go to a venue to collect the money. You wouldn't have to walk around with any cash unless you really wanted to. And keep in mind that for a lot of people, if the costs are already high in the United States, for a lot of people who live in rural areas in developing countries, yeah. they're just even harder. Yeah. Uh, the fees that I mentioned don't include the cost of a bus ticket to get to the center of town mm. somewhere in Burma or Thailand or um, Guatemala yeah. and so on. And so, you know, it's uh, from, from a developing markets perspective, it's a very interesting proposition. Another thing that uh, from the bank's perspective is attractive is that right now, I don't think this is quite as widely understood as it should be. In order to be able to make foreign transactions, banks have to set aside an amount of money, what's called pre-funding, uh, that they will essentially draw on each time that they conduct uh, a foreign transfer. It's the only way that the transaction can even get to the recipient's account within three to five days. If there wasn't that pre-funded amount, it would take even longer. Now, Libra is doing essentially the same thing with the Libra reserve. It has a reserve, which is essentially pre-funded and collecting interest. But it's likely collecting more interest than the pre-funded amount by the bank will do. And because of the technology involved and the, the instantaneous nature of the payment, the cost of putting it through is lower mm -hmm. so that you can charge people less as a result. The opportunity cost of that money that has to be set aside is less or could be less in the case of Libra than it is for existing uh, foreign transaction services. So when it comes to requirements like how much, I forget the term, how much you have to, a bank has to hold in its reserves. Sure, um, yeah, the reserve requirement. Reserve yeah. requirement. And then different countries have different, you know, amounts yeah. or percentages that are required as part of their, you know, the total money. This um, is, the pre-funding is separate, though. Pre-funding separate yeah, from reserves. The pre-funding okay. would be an account that you have with, um, or, you know, you will have it with your correspondent bank or you will have okay. it in an association of member banks that are all involved in transferring funds. It, it, it depends, but you have to set that money aside and mm. draw upon it to, uh, to, to make a payment sooner rather than later. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you you have this reserve of money that's required, mm -hmm. uh, or you have this uh, pre-funding that's required. You um, and the, actually, even talking about uh, money in reserve or or pre-funding money makes me wonder uh, to what extent is Libra and the Libra Association acting in a sense as a central bank, um, and to what extent how will regulators respond to the idea of uh, there's this you know large multinational. Um, uh, conglomerate that has a currency of its own, that has a reserve backing it that, that pre-funds, uh, you know, so that it can speed international money transfers, um, that works as a payment processor. Are, are, are you know, our regulators going to respond by saying, hey, look, you look like a bank, so we're going to regulate you like a bank. I mean, it, how is that going to shake out? Where, where do you see the role of regulation of the Libra Association? So the Libra Association is a body that sets standards. Mm -hmm. It isn't a financial institution, okay. as far as I can understand. It's got a membership of 28. And the expectation is that those 28 either are already financial institutions, like MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, or they will become financial institutions in whole or in part, okay. which is the case with Facebook's 
uh, division that will be providing payment services called Calibra. And so it is those individual organizations that will be regulated according to the services they provide. Whether they will be regulated by banks depends on what definition of a bank you want to give. It isn't clear yet what, for example, Calibra will be providing. It's clear that they will be providing what's called a digital wallet, mm-hmm. which is where you will hold your electronic currency, your Libra, and you will be it's like able a checking account in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah it will be like a like a cell phone app, yeah. like a smartphone app, yeah. and you'll be able to scan co- scan a code and in that way make a payment. And you know that mm-hmm. sort of uh, the things we already know from Apple Pay and and various other yeah. uh, electronic payment services providers or digital payment services providers. If they start taking deposits beyond this Libra reserve mm. beyond the one-to-one yeah, Libra yeah. to basket of currencies. They could be subject to depository regulations, might have to apply for deposit insurance, uh, might have to secure a charter from the FDIC or one of the other bank regulators. Mm. But as currently constructed, none of that really uh, applies. No, and it's, unclear, like. and it's unclear whether even Facebook could because according to old banking regulations that are still in place, the Bank Holding Company Act of 1956, a commercial company may not own a bank. Mm. Uh, This is what Walmart ran up against when a few years ago it tried to apply for a bank charter. And the banks, particularly the smaller banks in various states were up in arms about it and states threatened not to recognize the charter uh, or not to allow um, people institutions holding that kind of charter to operate in their jurisdiction. Uh, And so Walmart has to withdraw. Uh, But the rise of Libra does, again, raise the issue of whether this is good regulation. I don't think it particularly is because first it deters competition. And then secondly, uh, it is not obvious that integration between a commercial company and a financial services uh, business is a bad idea. Uh, in any, you know, ex-ante way. It may be that it raises antitrust concerns, but let's deal with that issue as we get to it, as we do with mergers, whether vertical or horizontal, in every other industrial uh, sector. There's something that's, uh, I mean, even mentioning Walmart um, and Facebook, there's a this, this one similarity, which is that they have their sets of critics, which are just worried about their sheer size and a certain kind of uh, sector dominance in their you know particular fields. Though it's starting to feel a little bit quaint in Walmart's case. I mean, you'll notice that the antitrust talks today aren't talking about Walmart like they were. I mean, I remember in the 90s, break up Walmart, got to break up Walmart. They're too big, too big. To, you know, they're uh, they need to be shrunk down the size. That feels quaint in the era of Amazon, right? So, but be that as it may, there's a certain kind of baked-in distrust of big corporations, particular uh, in general, and you know, Facebook and someone like Walmart uh, specifically. How would you respond to someone who says, "Look, Facebook is already this giant platform, right, with two point four or five billion uh, active users? Um, they they own WhatsApp, they own." Uh, a variety – it's kind of almost a, a corporate empire at this point with their tendrils expanding into all these different sectors and fields. 
Um, and now they're going to be getting into payment processing uh, and, and into you know through the Libra Association. We shouldn't allow them to do that because they're so big. It's scary. They're hegemonic. How would you reassure someone who's worried about Facebook's influence in the Libra Association? It hasn't launched yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all we all we know is that this is a project of companies that are quite innovative. Yeah. That do have large networks, and that's part of the reason why we should be hopeful that this will succeed. So it goes hand in hand in response mm-hmm. to your question. Size goes hand in hand with ability to succeed. Yeah. And they're entering a new market where there are uh, an, already an existing number of incumbents, some of whom do very well and know their markets very well. Uh, I mean, you know, it seems a little bit misplaced to feel pity and compassion for the very large financial institutions uh, of the United States, which uh, are extremely expert at navigating both the regulatory system and the business environment. It's good that we have new entrants Poor Bank of America, that's right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, or or small banks too, because small banks have been around and they know their customers well and they have particular uh, sets of expertise. I I don't, and, and you haven't, you haven't had that much antagonism come from the banks. It's funny because from what I've seen so far, and maybe you've seen otherwise, the, it, it, it's very much your priors and specifically your policy expertise that de- is likely to determine your stance on Libra. If you're a privacy or antitrust expert, you're much more likely to feel negative uh, with regard to Libra. If you're a monetary or financial regulation uh, policy person like I am, I'm a FinRig guy, you are much more hopeful because you see it as capable of finally addressing some of the important issues about financial exclusion, lack of competition, stagnation in innovation, lack of choice, lack of switching between accounts. The fact that in the United States, the leading financial services market in the world, we still don't have mobile money accounts, which Kenya has led on tremendously. All of those things finally may be addressed. By this, and it may even be that, as you were saying, that Libra doesn't become actually the most successful one, Mm -hmm. that we have other tech companies coming in as a result, or Walmart coming in. All it takes, really, from my perspective, to actually begin to establish a foothold in this is to have a large enough customer base that you know you get enough information from your customers, you have them transacting regularly with you, they have an incentive to adopt whatever currency you're offering because they know they will be coming back. That's essential. Uh, and then secondly, some lev- some degree of ubiquity and efficiency in your supply chain that be it online in terms of having a platform that provides internet services, that enables messages to be transmitted very quickly, or on an offline basis, having a lot of branches or a lot of offices or outlets that, that make it easier for people to use you in different locations. Uh, and the moment you have those two, uh, you can you are very much on a level playing field with everybody else to succeed network effects are very powerful forces but if they were the only forces around we would never have moved beyond whatever was the first uh institution or or company with network effects be it a&p in the 1930s or perhaps even uh further back the roman empire i guess in a way was a network roman law was a network but we overcome uh networks when a truly radical and beneficial innovation com- com- comes around. It is striking to me. I mean, uh, it, it, we've had a number of episodes talking about ways in which uh, countries um, outside of the developed world even have been leapfrogging uh, places like the U.S. 
uh, with technological development and rollout, kind of consumer rollout. So whether it's, you know, a sub-Saharan sheep herder using digital payments through M-Pesa, right, in, in nor- northern Kenya, or it's uh, in China, where I think my understanding is a majority of consumers use digital payment systems for a majority of their transactions. I mean, our adoption rate in the U.S. is in the single digits percentage of consumers. The rest of the world is ahead of us using um, – the kind of uh, network effect-based platforms that we're describing here. Uh, so we, we shouldn't be afraid of the underlying technology. And even if you're skeptical of, of Facebook, and uh, I share a sense, I mean, they obviously messed up with their transparency and use of data privacy in the last couple of years. Um, but even if you're skeptical of Facebook, they're clearly trying to gear this Libra association to assuage some of those concerns. They are one of 28 folks on the board right now, they want 100 each with a single vote. Uh, So if if this is your plan for world domination, it's a pretty bad evil plan. They should go back to the drawing board to give themselves one vote uh, over the governance structure of the Libra Association. So it appears they are... They are trying to do their best to say, look, this isn't just a Facebook thing. Yes, we'll benefit from it. Yes, this plays a role. We we want the Calibre wallet to be, you know, a kind of a dominant position here. But hey, look, I mean, if you go to their website, within two clicks, it's, it's, here's how you can program a node for yourself. Like here's, please, other folks who want to offer competing services to Calibre, you know, their own kind of Libra wallets and uh, Libra-based systems. Start working on it now. We're open to that. This is not what you do if you're trying to establish some kind of hegemonic market control. Um, so I, I find that reassuring myself, which is that uh, – and, and who knows what the future holds. It could be all the worst-case fears could come true, but we shouldn't assume that's going to be true. And my understanding is that this is an attempt to move away from the business model that Facebook has had until now, which I am, first of all, not an expert on. But secondly, agnostic about in the sense of whether you finance yourself with advertising revenue and people clicking on your ads or through a fee or something else is not really of great concern to me, although I would caution people that these things emerge because they are the most efficient way of allocating cost. The reason the merchant pays three to 400 basis points or whatever, however much the fee is, is that that encourages both the customer and the merchant to join the network. So we have the maximum number of interactions, which is a good thing. So to mess with those things can be tricky. But my understanding is Facebook is trying to move away from that model and toward one that is more based on direct charging for the provision of particular services. And particularly that the future of communication in social media is more on the messaging apps than it is in the newsfeed. I don't know if that is the case. But frankly, if you're concerned about the... uh, current operations of social media networks, particularly Facebook, shouldn't you welcome a turn that gives Facebook an economic incentive not to conduct business in that way and to do so in a different way? Hmm. You read a lot of the accounts about Libra so far, and they begin with a speculation, which is acceptable, and they move on to a very slanted discussion of the potential negative implications of that uh, speculative outcome. And on that basis, they call for draconian regulatory action in response to what is, again, uh, questionable effects from a low probability outcome from something that hasn't launched yet. (laughs) That's a very bad way to do policy. If you went to the doctor with one symptom 
that you'd begun to feel a few minutes before. And the doctor gave you the low probability, highest danger, highest risk disease as the only suggestion as to what you might have. This is definitely a rare bone cancer. And then prescribed (laughs) the most radical treatment to be had immediately. You would probably you know, run out of the room as fast as you can. And yet when it comes to policy prescriptions, we take those, we take that kind of attitude at face value. Yeah. That's a very, that's a, that's a great scenario for, I think, contextualizing how, how crazy that approach is. I mean, and it's possible that the, that, that paranoid doctor is correct. It could be a very rare form of, of whatever disease or disorder, but is it likely? Have we done due process? Have we pursued, you know, a second opinion, a referral to a specialist? There, we have to follow that process. Fall, you know, double check. Realize that the worst case scenario might not be the most likely scenario. I was just going to add to that that some people will know that the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, who was a seasoned politician and a progressive firebrand, Maxine Waters, called for a moratorium on the development of Libra uh, until somebody else said, we can figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, you know, she basically uh, made that statement. And an esteemed columnist in uh, one of the main financial papers wrote the other day that Libra shouldn't proceed or shouldn't be allowed to proceed by regulators uh, until the full implications are known. Now, picture that line when people were coming out of the cave uh, in the whatever it was, the Paleolithic or the Neolithic period. If the leader of the tribe had said, no, we shouldn't leave the cave until we know the full implications (laughs) of this. Well, we'd still be figuring it out. And uh, if we're waiting on Congress, we're never figuring it out. That's right. (laughs) The full implications of innovation or anything, any transformative uh, phenomenon in human life are never predictable. But one thing we know for sure, that if we use that as the standard, the losses we incur as a result of not doing things that would be beneficial are almost always greater than the potential downsides. And we have a much easier time dealing with the potential downsides once the innovation is around than before it. The question is, I suppose, do we want to live in a low-risk, low-innovation society or one that accepts higher risk in exchange for the higher rate of innovation and arguably across the scope of human history, much greater potential benefits than the potential downsides. What kind of what kind of society do we want to live in? And here at Building Tomorrow, we are definitely on the side of leaving the cave. So, so Diego, thanks for uh, coming and leading us out of the cave. Uh, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.